Hello, my friends. Today we are talking to Rich Aberman, the Chief Strategy Officer at WePay, and we discuss what it looks like pushing through the hard days of a startup, why it's easy for founders to fall into the wrong role by default, and how great it feels to be able to hire your mentors. All of this right here, right now on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. So we're just going to hang out and talk. There's not like big interview. I don't like switch personalities. I get interviewed by other people sometimes and they turn into different humans. Like when the interview starts, we're just going to hang out. And I guess I'm most interested. I love the word platitudes, by the way. So it's like a baller word to use. Um, but what, what, are the, what are the core um, tenants of the company? Yeah, I guess I'll start with, um, I think the one that's most personal to me, which is invest in relationships. Um, I started the company uh, with my best friend, college roommate, and I think most of I think the culture that we have today, I think is kind of a derivative of that. So the relationship that we have with our investors, with our early customers, um, I think when our back's been against the wall historically, that's always been what's pulled us through is being able to lean on those kind of interpersonal connections. And my hope is that that type of dynamic continues as the company outgrows the founders and folks. Uh, don't need to kind of drink beers together outside the office, but we want them to genuinely like each other um, and, and enjoy spending time with one another in the office. And I think if we can continue that as we scale, we'll be in pretty good shape. So how, happy to go through all of them, but that's, that, that's the big one for us. No, it's a very important one. Relationships are everything in life. How many people do you have at the company? Evelyn, how many do we have now? I think we, 340. Yeah, so I think we were acquired at a little over 200. Um, and so the goal was to double the size of the company in two years. So we're a little off track to hiring goals, but tough, tough hiring environment. So we're, we're still hiring aggressively uh, across all departments, particularly product and engineering. Um, so three, 340, hopefully growing to, I don't know, growing. That's exciting though, right? Now, how yeah. did you meet your co-founder? So Bill was my, my college uh, freshman year roommate. Um, we were in a similar program when we went to Boston college. And uh, I, I think it, we ended up being roommates and close friends or best friends, but I think there's a lot of kind of mutual respect there. Um, he was just someone that kind of challenged me intellectually and I think share a lot of common interests, but different skill set. And I think that makes a very nice co-founding team. So we on and off roommates through, through undergrad, uh, post-graduation, we both went on our respective ways. He, he went into finance as an investment banker. Um, I was on my way to law school. And I think we were just both not terribly thrilled about what those paths looked like, uh, had kind of a deeper calling in entrepreneurship and the timing was right. And we embarked on this journey in 2018, sorry, 2008. Okay. So you guys have been doing it 12, 12, 13, a while now. Yeah, I guess it's, it's the only, it's the only job I've ever had, um, post-college. It's the only real job I've ever had. And it's, it's been 12 years. It does not feel like 12 years. I think every year it's been a very, very different company, very different job, very different requirements to be successful, different environment that we've been operating in. Um, so it probably feels like three or four tours of duty, I'd say, um, where, you know, you have the super early stage days where we're just kind of trying to figure out what to do every day when we wake up and try to make it to the next rung on the ladder. There was kind of the, the, the post initial financing where we had real capital for the first time to hire outside employees. Um, 
and you know, I can go through the whole journey if you're interested, but the kind of last one is what does post-acquisition we pay look like? And I think we're writing that script as we go. Uh, that sounds, is there a lot of energy going on over there in the offices? Yeah, more than I expected. Uh, you know, when we, we made the decision to sell the company, I think we went into it with eyes wide open, kind of prepared for what that could mean for the company, um, but committed to doing everything we could not to kind of result in that eventuality. And so if you told me two years ago or three years ago when we made the decision to sell that we'd have as much enthusiasm uh, and momentum in the company as we do now, I probably wouldn't have believed it. I think we're, we're in a very good spot, uh, both personally as founders, um, looking at our baby kind of reach maturity and as kind of shareholders in JP Morgan Chase, looking at the position we're in, um, both broadly as a firm and specifically in technology in Silicon Valley. So, so why we pay? Like, why did you decide? What is it? And then why did you decide to build it? Yeah. So the, the company today is, I think, very, very different than the original vision that we were excited to pursue as kind of young, first time, relatively inexperienced entrepreneurs. Uh, so, so the initial vision, and I, I hesitate to even say the word vision because in retrospect, it feels like extremely sophomoric, um, was to make it really easy to send and receive money online, particularly young people that were sharing expenses. And now it's, it, it's so trivial because almost every, I, I've seen it maybe, first of all, every week there's a new kind of startup that reaches out to us that's trying to solve the same problem. You know, you want to split a bill at, at the dinner table. But it's also like the quintessential example of a problem that's not really deep enough or persistent enough to, to justify a company or a solution. Maybe it's a feature of some other product. So that was the original idea. You know, this was pre-Venmo, pre-Zelle, pre-Square Cash, pre-Apple Cash, pre-Facebook Cash. And the, the kind of the insight was there's got to be a more social, mobile way to send and receive money. Facebook had opened up its platform to third-party developers. People now, um, you know, everyone had an iPhone at this point, and it, it just really had a kind of the peer-to-peer send and receive money hadn't hadn't really arrived yet. And so that was the original vision. Um, to make a, a long story short, we realized fairly early on that building a network was expensive uh, and hard, and the kind of pure peer-to-peer value prop that we were offering wasn't valuable enough to, to get people to pay for it. So maybe we could have let people send and receive money for free, but they weren't going to pay us two, 3%. So we, we weren't in it to run a, a nonprofit. Um, and so we started experimenting with different value-add use cases on top of those payment rails that we had built. So we built a really simple store builder, like a considerably stripped down version of you know a Shopify today. We built a really easy donation platform. We built an invoicing solution. Um, we built uh, event management solution, like a stripped down version of Eventbrite. So we built all these capabilities because we were just trying to find our killer use case. Then we realized in every vertical that we tried to compete in and for every use case, there was some like really elegant, really robust SaaS solution that already did that. Eventbrite already did a great job at event management. Shopify already did a great job at e-commerce. FreshBooks and QuickBooks already did a great job at invoicing. And so the kind of the insight that I think changed the course of the company um, probably early 2013, so almost five years after founding the company, was we had built a really robust payment infrastructure that was able to power a variety of different use cases. And so to the extent we can open up our APIs and allow external developers and platforms to consume the payment infrastructure that we had built, we'd have a much more leveraged differentiated business. 
And so at that point in our history, we had raised already, I think, 30 million of venture capital. You know, we had 100 some odd people, our brand name, our culture, everything about the business uh, was based on that historical value proposition of us building our own tools and workflows and, and, and solutions. And the majority of our revenue uh, was in that arena as well. And I think we, that was probably the biggest uh, kind of pivot or decision we ever made was to sunset that historical business that we had founded the company on and go all in on what we would now call kind of an integrated channel strategy. And that's kind of the solution that ended up growing our business to something that was exciting enough for JP Morgan Chase to acquire. Did it, did it start as the name WePay? Yeah. Um, we founded the company as WePay. That's right. It was the first, first and only name that we, we ever had. I actually, I, I love the name. It has a lot of like personal meaning because it's, you know, it was the baby that we started 12 years ago. But I almost regret not changing the name earlier when we made the decision to pivot to a um, API business and an infrastructure business. Because the name itself, and to our credit, I think we got fairly good traction as a peer-to-peer -peer group, you know, payments business. And there's a lot of, you know, I would call it brand equity if we never pivoted, but then it's like brand baggage, baggage once, once we pivot. <laughs> yeah. And so people still associate us in part because of the name, I think, with that original business. And if, if we would have, you know, changed our name to Payment Tech or, you know, made up some name earlier on, I think it would have helped us make a cleaner pivot and, you know, really, really capitalize on that. When I first heard about it, I was like, oh, this must be the payment solution for WeChat. Yeah, they have a WeChat pay. So I'm sure at some point we'll run into like some <laughs> trademark issues, but WePay would be a more elegant name for them for sure. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll sell it and divest this affirm at some point. There, there's a strategy. When, when you were younger, were you really into tech or was it just something that was just kind of there? Were you playing video games and stuff or no? Yeah, I played a lot of video games. I was always a tinkerer. Um, so I think it was less less kind of cutting edge technology and electronics and more like problem solving. So I love like puzzles and logic. And I think most of what I've done in my role, like I think there's like pure technologists that have kind of grown up, you know, you know writing code at 10 years old and playing games and trying to divest them. And I, I almost have a degree of insecurity and envy for I think folks that have that DNA. I think if, if I had it as the head of product and head of strategy at WePay, we probably would have arrived at our, our end state faster because I think we would have read the tea leaves a little bit better and be able to execute on it from a product strategy perspective. But I think what I've, what I've excelled at and what I've enjoyed at WePay is much more like developing over time, not at the outset. So it wasn't a vision that I had kind of going into it, a deep understanding of our market and our industry and our customers and saying, how do those things come together in a, a unique capability that we can develop to provide value to our customers and capitalize on it? And so that's been kind of a 10-year logic game that I think I've enjoyed. And I'm not sure where that ends and technology begins, but I'm sure at some point they, they intersect nicely. So this morning I was listening to um, this older guy, his name's Art Williams. He's like a billionaire insurance guy from like the 80s and 90s. Uh, he's like super old now, but he gave these like big speeches and stuff because he started as like he started as a football coach and then grew this billion dollar life insurance company. And he was talking about, you know, like the difficult moments like in business, how you feel like you keep getting it off the ground and then you, you're back at square one, like over and over and over. 
And I resonate with that, right? Being in the startup world. But I was curious, like you guys have, have gotten to the point where you actually have sold, but there was like definitely difficult times. Like how did you and your business partner, like how did you get through them? Yeah, I forget the, what's the cliche? It's like desperation is the is the key ingredient to innovation or something like that. <laughs> yeah. I think like most of the major leaps that we've taken as a company have come at points where, you know, we've been, we've been in the deepest of existential crises. Like that, that kind of is where a lot of the innovation has come from, um, or at least the hard decisions where you're almost forced to make them one way or the other. I asked, so our general counsel who's been with us for a long time, had a really exciting exit in a previous company. And I remember asking her at what point at that company did she feel like they had made it, like cross the chasm. It wasn't going to go to zero. Who knows how big the outcome would be. And she said when the money hit the bank account <laughs> after the acquisition, like not when they were growing very quickly, not when they had interested buyers, not when they signed, you know, an agreement, but when the money like in the wire hit. And I, I didn't really believe it at the time. So I was like, there's got to be some moment where you feel like you've, you've made it. And, you know, we, we had a, I think, phenomenal outcome for us, for our shareholders, for our employees, but, you know, it wasn't, you know, we didn't have a multi-billion dollar IPO. And I wonder for those companies, do they ever feel like they made it? Even with the IPO, I'm sure those CEOs and those founders are still losing sleep at night for all the, no matter how unlikely all the possible terminus states that are, are, are not favorable. So, yeah, I, 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 I think that resonates with me a lot. I can go through like a million horror stories as to when we, we really thought we were at the ropes, you know, two, two weeks of payroll less that left, you know, in a, in a fairly later stage financing round um, points of time during the acquisition for no fault of JP Morgan's or our own. It seemed like uh, there might not actually be a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, thank God we had a good buyer and I think they acted with, with transparency as did we, but you know, there were points where we were like, this thing might not come together and we've already invested uh, a lot in this, in this exit. So, yeah, I don't know if that answers the question, but I, I it, it does, but I want to, I want to dive a little bit deeper into like, like tactical things. Like, uh, you seem like a pretty healthy fit person. Do you find that like exercise helps with the stress? Like, like in those stressful moments, do you have a routine that you fall back on? You're like, wow, this is one of those moments. And so I need to like hit the gym and like do that. Like, how do you like deal with the stress? Yeah, I don't know if I'm a good example of someone that's done that in a healthy way. I, I feel very much, like, <laughs> and I'm, I'm not proud of this. I think my co-founder is a good counterexample, but I I think I, in some, to some extent, mortgage my personal kind of emotional and physical health, uh, certainly over the past five or six years as we, we ended up here. I don't think it has anything to do with the acquisition in terms of like giving me the space and the luxury to invest in that stuff, but that was a nice kind of, point in time that I could point to and say, okay, that at least was a shock to the system where now I'm like committed to recovering a lot of my kind of youthful health that I feel like I've lost over the past couple of years. My co-founder was very different. So I think he, he coped with the stress and the anxiety a lot better than I did and like never kind of wore it on his sleeve, maybe internalized it in ways that none of us can see. But I, I think one of the things that made him a better CEO than I would have been, um, and I think well-prepared for that role was his ability to kind of take it in stride approach the world with, with, with perspective and compartmentalize that. I think I, I kind of wore it on my sleeve a little too much. So I appreciate the compliment. Um, I hide it very well, but I, I don't think I, I think if I was giving advice to a younger me uh, or a first time entrepreneur going through something similar, it's like the one thing you don't get back or the one thing that's harder to get back is health. And the one thing you definitely never get back is time. 
And so I, I don't think there's any amount of success uh, that's worth mortgaging those those things, nor do I think it, it helps. Like, I don't think sacrificing those things bolstered our chances of success. I almost think it was just my inability to find healthy and appropriate coping mechanisms. I kind of retreated into the company uh, and into the anxiety of that, but I feel pretty good now. I, think we're I love your self-awareness too, man. It's like, it's, it's, on, it's on point. I noticed that the room is called, the conference room that you're in is called Hubbard. Is there some interesting naming convention for the conference rooms there? Yeah, we went through a few. The original ones that we had years ago in our first office were names of different international currencies. Um, the second one was Harry Potter locations. Uh, and this one is Famous Mountains. And so, oh, I like it. and actually we named the conference rooms before the acquisition, but the theme post-acquisition was this mountain that we're trying to scale. So like, what does the summit look like? And part of that was like, you know, hokiness of founders saying, look, this is the beginning. We're at base camp, not the end. So buckle up. We're in for a ride. This is not the exit. This is the entrance. And part of it, I think, is an authentic, like, you know, we do have a summit that we want to climb. We want to be market leaders in small business and integrated payments. That's, that's the summit. And I think it's a, it's a scalable, achievable summit in a relatively short time window because of the acquisition. You know, we're on a much bigger platform now. I think we bring assets to the table. JP Morgan brings assets to the table. And I think if we combine those in the right way and we execute on our plan, kind of the thesis of the acquisition, I think you can look at the you know, maps in our conference rooms. I, I think we will hit the top of that mountain, whether it's 12 months or 18 or 24, we'll, we'll hit it. And we have milestones along the way that we call out publicly, every conference room in the, not this one, this is where we do public stuff. And that's kind of our, our, our roadmap. And then the, the natural question is, that's not the end either. What's the summit that comes after that? So not to kind of ramble, but this is something I'm personally very passionate about. At the acquisition, we sent out a three-year roadmap to scale to the top of our mountain. Top of the mountain being, we are a market leader in merchant services or payment processing for small businesses. And we understand that to win in that market, you have to also win in the integrated space, meaning payments is not some standalone product that's sold to small businesses anymore. It's integrated into their point of sale systems. It's integrated into their e-commerce platforms. It's integrated into their accounting and invoicing solutions. So that's our, our mountain that we want to climb. And I think to keep me around in a natural extension of WePay's roadmap, and I think the strategy of the broader firm is how do you expand that kind of payment strategy to include all of retail banking? So it's not just payments from Chase being integrated into your point of sale system. It's the entire suite of financial products that you get as part of a holistic banking experience. How does that work better with a software that you use to run your business? That to me is the next summit, really reinventing retail banking, taking it into the 21st century, saying branches and physical brick and mortar locations of the bank and the brand are all still going to be relevant. But going into the 21st century, it's not enough. It's, it's much more about an integrated open API strategy and how we allow kind of the bank to work better with the whole ecosystem of third-party platforms and developers. And I think that that will be the next summit that we try to climb. That's exciting. I was talking with um, uh, Amex, who's actually, you're in, you said you're in New York, right? We're in San Francisco. Oh, you're in San Francisco. Uh, I think when your PR person got on the phone, she was in New York. But uh, anyways, I was talking with, uh, in, in New York, um, uh, CTO or the vice president of engineering for uh, Amex. And they're doing really cool things with their platform and the ability to like issue Amex points. Totally. Uh, 
yeah, I don't know if you guys do anything with them, but if you ever want an introduction, I'm more than happy to make that. Yeah, I might take you up on that. We work closely with them in, in a lot of ways. Okay. But I think it's it's not a. I don't. I think there are founders and entrepreneurs and executives that are able to kind of prophetically see the way the world's going to be or the way the world should be, and they spend their entire careers like imposing that vision upon the universe. And you could probably count those folks on one or two hands, right? Like Steve Jobs probably fits in that category. Elon Musk probably fits in that category. Um, we we do not. <laughs> so I think. For us, we had some natural starting point based on our own kind of life experiences that was fairly limited, both in terms of its kind of importance and in terms of the time horizon on which we were able to think through it. Um, but I think after 12 years of beating our heads against the wall, we have a kind of deeply informed opinion of where our market and industry is going to go and the role that we can play in that and how it's valuable to the market, to our customers, and the time horizon on which we're able to think about that and the ambition of the role that we think we can play in it has grown pretty dramatically. That's kind of where we are. And so like integrated payments, where the epiphany was payments is no longer a standalone feature, a standalone product and a standalone business. It's a feature of the software that you're already using to run your business. That was not an original vision, but it was one that I think we identified very early and embraced and executed on fairly well. I think the same is true as we think about more broader integrated or open banking. You know, we didn't invent that concept. I think it's at this point uh, fairly universally accepted from all the legacy players out there or traditional players out there like Amex, like JP Morgan, uh, and something that a ton of fintechs are raising billions of dollars to go pursue. Um, but I think our perspective on it and the assets that we bring to bear, uh, I think uniquely qualify us to win in that, in that world. And so it's not surprising that Amex and I think other major banks are focused on it. Uh, I think it's, it's validating to some extent. And so the question for us is, what's, what's our race and what race do we want to run and, and how do we win it? And I'm feeling pretty good. I feel pretty invigorated by the spot that we're in. I like you guys. I like your energy and your attitude. And you're obviously doing something right. <laughs> uh, I, was, I pulled the, like our mailing list, asking them like what they wanted to hear about, what they wanted me to ask you, things like that. And one of the ones that came up was about like digital identity verification. Like everybody's like, anti-fraud like in a millisecond things like that have you guys like had to build that type of stuff or um we've we've leveraged it and we've built i think peripheral capabilities capitalizing on a lot of the security things that other folks have, have built so an example is our way of authenticating customers has evolved beyond the password we still rely on it but we've leveraged a whole series of third-party technologies to make that easier from you know, facial recognition to authenticate through your iPhone to, you know, machine fingerprinting to make sure that you don't just have a password, but you're using a device that we recognize. I, I would say what's exciting for me, even as just uh, as a as kind of an audience of the industry, is historically you had call it two axes between kind of the level of security that you can achieve and the experience of the customer. And so the more security you get, asking more questions, having more you know, authentication protocols that you, you leverage, the more you degrade the customer experience. And so you're making this trade-off between like, how confident do you want to be that the other person on the end of this machine is who they say they are versus how much are you willing to degrade the experience for good users? And so you have this efficiency frontier where it's this direct trade-off between the two. And I think what's exciting is now that frontier has been pushed out where you have mechanisms now that are both more secure and more reliable 
and a better experience for your customers. And that's pretty profound. Like I, you know, for me a year ago, it was unbelievable that I could open up my phone and just start using it without having to use my, even my fingerprint because it does facial recognition. So biometrics four years ago from an iPhone with a fingerprint was transformative. And now it's like, it's getting better every day. The fact that on my laptop now, I can use my fingerprint to open it up as opposed to putting in a passcode is both easier and more secure because it's leveraging something that's unique to me versus something that I uniquely know. So I think it's gonna have a profound impact on our industry. I think, you know, I look at fraud as a ever-present problem that will never go away, but it seems like the, the defense is growing in sophistication as fast or faster for the first time than the, than the offense. That the, the tools that we have at our disposal to protect ourselves and our customers were, were inconceivable, at least seeing them in practice 10 years ago. And, and now it's like super exciting to be able to leverage those tools. We haven't invented ourselves any kind of new biometric capability or, or kind of recognition software. Um, but I think we incorporate it and leverage it in really creative ways that help us deliver much better experiences to our customers. Yeah, I had on Rob, who's uh, CEO of Akata or Ekata, but uh, have you heard of them before? They're like, I think they're in Seattle, but they, they, were, a, they were actually like a divestiture of uh, white pages. You remember white pages? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So they had like all this data about where people lived and their phone numbers and their patterns and all this stuff. And they ended up building essentially like a anti digital identity verification, anti-fraud API with all their, with all their data. And they spun out of uh, white pages and became, you know, Ekata. Yeah. I, I guess it's another theme. I, I kind of honed in right away on new software capabilities to, to kind of authenticate identity but I think you're tapping in another one, which is there's also, there's always been a massive amount of data, but it's the accessibility and availability of that data, which is relatively unique today. Uh, and I think part of that is just building kind of an open API first ecosystem where information that's historically lived in offline silos is now living in you know online accessible databases. And I think to the extent we or third party, you know, fraud, fraud solutions can leverage that data. I think there's definitely ways that we can um, use it to better protect against fraud and, and data breaches and things like that. Well, if you listen to any episode, I would listen to the first 10 minutes of, of Rob's episode because he's just like, I don't know. I don't think I laughed that hard in any, in any of the 200 interviews I've done. The guy was just hilarious. And he was like, really, he's like a nuclear, he used to be a like nuclear submarine operator for the Navy, like in the Navy. And then he came out and he did a startup and then he ended up, um, going to white label or white pages and then becoming a CEO of the divestiture, but just like all around awesome human. Oh, it's good to hear. I will. I'll definitely listen yeah. to it. I think in this industry, you got to have a sense of humor just to get through the day to day. So it's, it's good to hear. Uh, I am curious, like as the chief, chief strategy officer, that's your official title, right? Yeah. So what is, what does your team uh, look like or what does your responsibilities look like? Yeah. I also, I, I think, Titles in startups are always a little bit of a, of a joke. Um, so I'm happy to talk about my responsibilities today. I actually, the title is chief strategy officer. I'm also head of product, so I run the product organization. So my, oh, cool. my, uh, my team looks like a bunch of product managers and supporting functions and you know, program management. We have a design team as well. So that's kind of my day-to-day -day function is product management, I guess. A couple of things worth noting. One is at a product or a technology company, I don't know the difference between like product strategy and non-product strategy. It's all product strategy. 
And to the, I think one of the advantages that a smaller company has is that you can kind of marry strategy and execution in a way that's a lot more intimate than in a much larger company that has much more complexity organizationally and operates on a much longer time horizon. So I, I, I think there are some tech companies that do it really well, but inevitably as you get larger, there, there is this kind of divergence of strategy and execution. And I think it's kind of one of the big questions that we have is how do we make sure those two things are tied together? Historically, we haven't had to deal with that. We've had the luxury of being a 200-person company where your founder, one of your founders, your chief strategy officer, and your head of product are all the same person, and you can get your entire product and engineering team in, in one conference room. So that's one quick thought. I think the other one is I, I wasn't the CEO. My co-founder was the CEO, and deservedly so. And I wasn't a computer scientist or engineer by trade or experience. And so I think it's tempting for founders that fit that profile where they can't really put a finger on their skill set in part because they're probably too young and inexperienced to have a real one. Assume that they're product people or they have a sense of design. And I think I fell into that, into that trap because it was an easy way to define my role because the skills necessary to succeed there, I thought were relatively soft skills. In, in practice, I think over the 12 years I've learned product management is as much a science as it is an art. Uh, and there's a real technical skill set uh, that I think great product managers consistently have. And I wouldn't consider myself a great product manager. I think great product managers come from organizations that have great product management. And they work under mentors that are great product managers. And so I've, I've now had the luxury 12 years into it to at least identify uh, my deficiencies and and the luxury to kind of hire my own mentors. And so I, I at this point in my career, I'm kind of confident in, in my skill set and ability to lead and manage. So I'm able to say this from a place of confidence versus insecurity, but I'm, I'm I think, the least qualified, classically trained product manager in my organization. And the folks that I'm learning from and my mentors and the folks that are helping me kind of develop my technical skill set in that function. Um, are people that we hired out of great organizations that have great product teams that have worked for great product managers in the past. And so my, my title is head of product or, you know, and I lead a team of product managers. But I think I do that from a place of, from a depth of knowledge of our industry, our market, our customers, and not from a place of having the requisite skill set to be a great product manager. Yes, yeah, so you can have the mindset of your customers in the room. Yeah, and some might argue that that's like the number one trait of a product manager is kind of knowing your customers and your market. Um, I think it's a very, very important trait for a great product manager, but necessary, not sufficient. What would be sufficient is rounding that out with the ability to understand the underlying technology, the ability to plan effectively, to understand kind of ROI trade-offs, uh, to create, you know, an appropriate, you know, product design, you know, requirements document to iterate on that. Uh, and, and kind of an agile environment. So I, you go on and on about what makes a great product manager, but I don't think it's enough just to know the market. You have to be a trained product manager. And I think it's it's been a learning experience for me to to appreciate that. And I love the advice of hiring your mentors because it's kind of counterintuitive. Like you don't imagine you could, you don't imagine that that's a possibility, but having that mindset is like pretty awesome. Oh yeah, I, that's the biggest benefit of founding a company that gains some momentum is that you you can kind of pick who you want to learn from, you know? And it's it's always an interesting dynamic when you're hiring people that have more life experiences, more professional experiences, a deeper technical skill set. Um, and I think one is to acknowledge that and appreciate it and 
from a place of confidence, understand what value you bring to the table and your unique perspective. Um, and the other place is to kind of shy away from it uh, and to hire people that you don't consider your mentors and folks that you feel like you can easily manage because you're their senior. And I, I think that's the wrong way to build a business and, and run a company. So. I agree. I like to, when I'm going into a new market or something new that I don't understand, which happens a lot, I'll look for authors in that area, right? That like write content on how they're doing what they're doing. And because at a minimum, they can articulate their ideas, like, and they can have the persistence to publish a book. <laughs> and so I'll look and then I'll go, they're available. Like you can hire them as consultants, you can sell them on the idea and hire them full time, or you can bring them in just to, to learn how to identify the people that have the best traits in that industry and how to hire those correct types of individuals. But yeah, that's one of the things that I picked up by accident because I just read this book once and I, I just like, well, I'll just email the author because I had a question and then he responded to me. And then I said, Hey, if I like buy you coffee, will you come meet with me? And he's like, yeah. And then I realized that like, one of the greatest things we have with technology and transportation and speed is that we can get a book or a piece of content, learn from it, and then engage with the creator of that content in like real time. Like you couldn't do that in, in the 1600s. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. That's, that's, a, that's a really good insight. Yeah, especially where books were printed and shipped like years later. And, and now there's just this ubiquity of information and accessibility of the people that create it. I like that. That's, that's a good insight. So as, as we get like, we're all new year, right? Everyone's really pumped for the new year. I know you mentioned you had, you had like a, a three-year plan, but if you were to say like, there's one driving factor that, that gets you up out of bed in the morning, that gets you excited about, about going into work, what would that be? Yeah, I'm, I think I'm always excited. Like for me, the, the exciting part of the job is always the next product release. And that might, that might even be a little bit myopic, but it's like, that's, it's almost like we work, that's, that's what we're doing day to day is we're developing technology and product. Um, and if you're not excited about seeing that thing come to life and for people to use it in the real world and to kind of release it into the, into the wilderness, I don't know what you're doing like that. And it, you know, it's, and it's never, I'm very, very excited about our two, three year mission. I think by serendipity alone, we ended up in this market and in this industry. And I think, I've now grown up with it and it's my entire worldview is informed by like integrated payments and banking and, and SaaS companies that we're integrated with. And I love it, man. It's like intellectually stimulating. Uh, I love kind of sparring with our product managers on the best way to attack it. I love engaging with our customers on, you know, what challenges they're having and what solutions we can develop. But for me, like the number one motivating thing is, is like the release that's coming in a month and a half. And I just can't wait for it to roll out. And then a month after it rolls out, I'm going to look at it, in all its warts and begin to slowly hate it <laughs> and, and get really excited about replacing it with a release after that. I think that's, that's the cycle. And it, it can't be too different from someone that paints or writes or has any other creative expression where it's like, it's that cathartic moment where it's kind of out and you love it for all, all of 24 hours. And then you slowly start to see it as a stale piece of legacy that you want to, you want to kill and replace. So I, I think that's, that's the creative cycle. Yeah, it's like the familiarity breeds contempt, right? Like you, you write something, you love it, you put it out in the world, and it's just like you, you know it so much, and it's just like, ah, eh, it could be better. But that also is a sign that I've only picked up in very successful people. So on that's like one of my personal identifiers for successful people. When you look at past work and you're like, eh, you know, like that could have been a hundred times better because the realization of that means you've grown since your work was created. 
Yeah, I love that. I, for me, it's like as people adopt, recognize, appreciate, and fall in love with your creation, like at that kind of pinnacle is you're halfway through your cycle of beginning to hate it and replace it. And that's, <laughs> and that's probably the right cadence, right? Because it, it, it takes time to tear down yeah. and replace. And so if you're kind of well on your journey of tearing down and replacing when people are kind of peaking in terms of their adoption and love this technology, you're probably on the right, probably the right cadence. So as we start to wrap up, I know you mentioned you're growing and you're hiring a lot. Uh, we have a lot of technology people, product people, engineering, technology leaders, the whole, the whole spectrum. Um, do you have a careers page on your website? Yeah, what, what's the URL? Wepay.com slash careers. Yeah, wepay.com slash careers. Um, and we're, you know, WePay still maintains kind of its own hiring, recruiting, uh, kind of autonomous culture. But I think where beneficial, we're, we're blending that with roles across the firm. You know, not a ton of success stories of big banks gobbling up technology companies uh, and, you know, realizing the full potential of the acquisition. I think we, we want to write that story in that playbook, but we acknowledge that we don't really know what it is and we're going to do it moving. So we've, we've begun to um, cross-pollinate roles to kind of see how that plays out. But currently, WePay is still very much focused on, on hiring for our own, our, our own seats. Excellent. So we'll put, we'll put that link in the show notes, too, so people can check it out. Huh? New Campus. New Campus. Oh, I got Evelyn feeding me uh, things that we got to plug. So we... Yeah, anything else? Let's, let's get a list of things to plug. We got New Campus. Yeah, we got New Campus. So we're, we're building this, like, massive, modern, beautiful... Uh, campus right in the heart of Palo Alto, uh, which we're very excited about. I think it's JP Morgan putting their money where their mouth is in terms of investing here. What else we got? Uh, what, what are we missing? Um, it's what we had a board member. We, we had a board member from JP Morgan Chase here the other day, and I'm not going to mention his name or her name. I'll leave that open. Uh, but ha had the best comment. He's like, I mean this more in terms of mentality than actual geography, but they're asking all the right questions in New York, and they're coming up with all the right answers in Silicon Valley. And I thought that was just like classic. And I think it was less again about New York versus East Coast, West Coast, and a lot more about finance and kind of money management and, and technology. And so I think JP Morgan as a firm recognizes that the winds are blowing in the technology direction. And I think they're investing billions of dollars from the pragmatic, you know, buying WePay, building a new campus, uh, to the, you know, sponsoring the Chase Center in, in downtown San Francisco. So we got our out there to. <laughs> <laughs> so the marketing professionals are writing angry letters. Branding is everything. Oh, I, said, I said, uh, what was the other comment that came up? I was like, wow, you guys have spent $2 billion in marketing. She's like, no, we, we've invested $2 billion in marketing. <laughs> JPMC actually has an annual $11.4 billion in investing in technology, which is part of the Silicon Valley campus that we're going to build up. Yeah, there's over 10 billion a year uh, invested in technology, which is just a, a magnitude and a scale that we've we've never seen. Which I guess is a luxury you have if you're making 100 million dollars in like profit post tax a day. Um, we pay as <laughs> we as a we as a wholly owned subsidiary are not quite there yet, but we're on, we're on our way. I believe in you guys. Stay tuned. This has been absolutely fantastic. And next time I'm out in the San Francisco Palo Alto area. Uh, I'll give you a ring, shoot you a text on, uh, you'll be on our, our list and maybe we'll hang out, see the new offices, uh, just say hello, just cool person. I like to meet cool people. Yeah, we'd love to. I'll buy you a beer. Awesome, man. Cool. Awesome. Thank you. All right. Have a fantastic day. Thank you again so much. Thanks Bye. For